Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, the podcast for professional public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, founder of VoxGig.com, which is an online community and service for speakers and event professionals. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. In this episode, I speak to Andrew Grill. Andrew is a professional keynote speaker. That means he's good enough to get paid to speak, and there's a thing or two about how to get there. Andrew is a practical futurist. You'll find out what that means in a minute, and has launched and led multiple companies in Australia and Europe. He's spoken at several TEDx events and is also a writer and blogger. You will not regret reading his thoughts on his site, which is the very cool and easy to remember address, andrew.lover. I'm delighted now to sit down with Andrew for a fireside chat about not just public speaking, but a host of topics from diversity to our shared digital future. Okay, so let's get started. Um, Andrew, can you remember your very first professional speaking engagement? I can. It was about 19 years ago. It was at the online field show in Ballarat, Australia. The way it transpired was my boss, a lady called Libby Christie, who was a senior executive in Telstra at the time, said, Andrew, um, I'm busy for this event. I want you to do it. And so uh, pangs of panic came over me. Oh, my goodness. I've now got to replace my boss and be intelligible and logical at a big event where lots of people are going to be uh, watching me speak. So uh, I suppose I better go ahead and do this. And that was 19 years ago. And as they say, um, um, the rest is history. So you were literally just dumped into it. Did you have any previous experience speaking in public? Did you do um, musicals in school, anything like that? Luckily, I did. I was a debater at school, and I famously remember when I was in grade five in Adelaide, Australia, debating the grade sevens, and we won. And so I'd always had the gift of the gab. And I'm often asked how I overcame my fear of public speaking, and it's a a really interesting story. Probably 25, 26 years ago in Adelaide, Australia, again, I was involved in a young um, youth uh, organisation, and they every year had a public speaking competition. I thought, well, one day I might need to, to have this skill, so I'll enter the competition, which I duly did. I turned up on the night. Actually, on the night, I said to the organiser, I'm not ready. I haven't got my cards. And he, he all but waved his finger at me. Said, and he said, Grill, you're going to do this. And the way it worked was there was a six-minute prepared talk, and to this day, I have no idea what I spoke about. But on the night, the way they ran it, they would give you an envelope, and in that envelope was a topic. And you had to rip open the envelope and there and then craft a talk for four minutes. Oh, wow. And so I nervously ripped the envelope open and the piece of paper said that your heroes have let you down. And I often ask people, guess what I spoke about for the next four minutes? And Richard, maybe you can have a guess. What, what would I have possibly covered over four minutes with that topic? Uh, that you hear the teachers have let you down. No, it was much simpler than that. I said that the Muppets had let me down, that Miss Piggy weren't real and they'd let me down. Now, I knew in the first 30 seconds, in fact, I'm getting goosebumps now remembering, the first 30 seconds I realised I can do this. I'm really enjoying it. And so I had to force myself to to do that, go through the four minutes. At the end of it, I realised that it wasn't as hard as I'd expected. And I, I got a natural high. I really enjoyed doing it. So fast forward probably five, six years later when I was thrust upon 
uh, that speaking engagement by my boss, um, it, it wasn't as daunting as it might have been. But uh, I tell all speakers that are starting out, you have to overcome that fear and, and <laughs> the next 19 years is easy. I Presumably you didn't get to speak about the Muppets again at that, uh, that professional talk. <laughs> No, but if I, I, I use that um, story as a filler. So let's say there's a technical problem. I have two stories to cover that. The first story is when I did have a technical mishap and uh, I was left on stage with a computer that had frozen. So I got the sound people to put some music on and they got the audience to stretch. Um, if, I, if I've already told that story, the second filler story I use is how I overcome my fear. Now, what it does is it's a beautiful deflection because the audience then forget there's a technical mishap. They hear an interesting personal story and then it gives me about four minutes to get things going again. So that's another tip. Always have an, an anecdote up your sleeve that maybe even talk about what's happening. You know, we've had a technical snafu. Reminds me of the time in 2004 I was on stage and it just disarms people and they forget there was ever a technical snafu. And it also allows you to remain composed and, and not get uh, flustered by the, the problem at hand. And this is, this is, this is an important, uh, this is an important one to remember. I think uh, a lot of people are afraid, uh, have a fear of public speaking because they haven't developed a skill set around it. And having, Things in your back pocket like this, things that you can bring out when the AV fails. Um, this is kind of how you do it. This is how you overcome the fear. Uh, I've, I've been in similar situations. I haven't been quite as well prepared, but uh, uh, I certainly take that one, one away from mine. Well, I'll give you one more tip. What I also do, again, I generally present from PowerPoint. And if anyone see me present, I generally don't have lots of words. They're beautiful pictures and phrases. And so I actually, with, with the version that's going to be prepared and, and, and shown, I convert it to a PDF file and I email it to myself and I have it on my iPhone in my pocket. So let's assume all the tech completely destroyed itself. It didn't work anymore. I could at least look at my iPhone and look at what the slides would have said and I can describe them because they're, they're very devoid of, of language. They're more visual. Uh, and that, again, gives you a backup that maybe they'll get the system working again. But in my, literally in my back pocket is a backup of the slides that I could look at and read them and, and still carry on. And, and yet another thing that is uh, really, really useful to do, uh, you, can, you can install PowerPoints or Keynote or whatever on your phone, copy the stuff over. I, I would do that as well. And it's... it's, uh, it's, it's Interesting, it's like a talisman or something, a physical thing, maybe in your back pocket that you know is there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing that a lot of people ask me about is how do I get started? And I don't mean how do I get started public speaking. I literally mean when I walk on stage and I freeze, how do, how do I get over that? How do I actually start speaking on stage? Well, I always say the first 90 seconds is, is so important. I've been doing this for a while, but I, I even have to know that that first 90 seconds I have to nail. And often I'll, if, I'm, if I play a video fairly early on and, and I'm sitting back and watching the audience watch the video, I mentally say to myself, yep, we're away. We're underway. I've got through the first 90 seconds. I've given the impactful quote. And I was the sort of speaker that used to say, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Good afternoon. I'm the, I'm the thing between you and drinks, which are all the cliches. Yeah, yeah. And a good friend of mine, Martin Brooks, who is called the impactologist, he's a great friend, one, because he's a great human being, but secondly, uh, he does this for a living. He, look, he watches speakers and he watches my talks, and I then get an audio file for him. It was almost a present overnight. He says, you should do this, that, and the other. And one thing he taught me was, you need to have real impact from that first 90 seconds. So, for example, one talk, I walked on the stage, I had my own walk on music, it died down, and I said literally this quote, since 2000, 52% of the Fortune 500 have been destroyed through digital disruption. And I paused. And what 
grab the audience was this wasn't someone saying hello happy nice to be here it was here is a quote that you need to listen to and i could actually hear the whole room completely quiet and, and i had them from that first 90 seconds and i felt the energy that the audience was with me saying wow what, what's he going to say next and it allowed me as a speaker to get into my rhythm so i always rehearse the first 90 seconds um it might change on the day it might be that a speaker before me had said something so amazing that you've got to replay that back um, but, but to your point, always make sure that first 90 seconds is nailed and the end 90 seconds. What are you going to say? Not, um, you know, oh, thanks very much. It's nice to be here. End with something that is substantial and will make them think. Uh, once you've got the beginning and the end uh, almost rehearsed in your head, I think the rest is easy. I think you're right. And this is where sometimes if, if you are doing public speaking because you've been asked to by your boss, uh, and you're just thinking about conferences that you have attended and you're just pretty much copying what you've seen, you're not actually reaching the level of excellence that you could. Uh, part of what we're trying to do here is find out how do, you, how do you get to the next level? So many speakers do that, and I, I do it myself. I know I, I start dying inside when you start going, oh, I'm all the sense between lunch, because it is cheesy. Uh, you've got yeah. to make that impact. Uh, you've got to get some hook for the audience right at the start and right at the end. It's the hook that you know you've got them because they look up from their phone and they're looking at you and you have their concentration and they, they don't, they're not forced to go back to do something else because they're distracted. They're saying, what is he going to say next? This is really interesting. Um, and you, you keep them going. And, and also as a presenter, you then look around the room and you see that all the eyes are actually watching you rather than buried in their phone. You, you know that you've got to, You've got to maintain that level of credibility, that maintain that level of energy to, to keep them engaged for the full 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes. Absolutely. Let, let's, let's turn to the subject uh, matter that you talk about, which I find really intriguing. You describe yourself as a, as a futurist. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe take the floor and tell us what that is. Well, actually, I describe myself as a practical futurist, ah, and I do that deliberately okay. because there are some wonderful futurists out there and in fact i use one in my talks arthur c Clarke, yes. my favorite yes. futurist 50 years ago this year he co-wrote uh, space odyssey 2001 and there's a brilliant interview that an australian journalist did with him in 1974 and it was actually filmed in a computer room so it's quite noisy and the journalist asked arthur what will life be like in the year 2001 now arthur nails it he gets it right he talks about the fact that you'll have a computer in your own home will be able to work remotely he even talks about the societal impacts of what's going on what arthur was doing though was predicting the future in 30 years time most of the audiences i present to haven't got 30 years they haven't got 30 months haven't got 30 weeks they need to know right now what should they do next week next month, next quarter, to stem the threat of disruption, to protect their business or, or grow and innovate. And so I deliberately call myself a practical futurist. Two things, it's, it's actually quite easy then to get a domain name. Yeah. I've got practicalfuturist. <laughs> so important. Uh, and, uh, and also, when I put the word practical futurist on my conference badge, people see that and go, oh, what's that? And if it just said futurist, it's kind of, well, I know what a futurist is, but I don't know what a practical futurist is. So it invites a discussion and it forces people to think differently. And I kid you not, I, I did a talk up in um, Leicestershire, uh, in Leicester rather, a few months ago. And on the day I did the talk and I got a lovely tweet from a lady saying uh, that was very useful. 25 hours later, she tweeted again saying, we've just run Andrew's ideas at our next uh, our latest team meeting and we're going to put them into place. And that proves to me that I'm giving and delivering practical advice that they can take away and use straight away. I almost tell people in the first five or 10 minutes, you know, 
I explain I'm, I'm a practical futurist and I want you to leave this room with three or four things you can do differently. But we may cover this in the end. Often I get off stage and people say, that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's flattering and I appreciate that. But what I then say is, that's very nice, but what will you do differently? And they go, well, that's a good question. And in fact, two, two Thursdays ago, I was, I was speaking at the Ingram Micro Cloud Summit. Literally, I was in the lift uh, had walked off stage going up to drinks and a lady said, oh, that was fantastic. And I said, what will you do differently? She said, I just sent an email to my boss saying we should have more dynamic management meetings. And I, I, I almost hugged her. I said, thank you. You know, it, it takes a lot to prepare these presentations and it's nice that you think my delivery is good, but I want you to do something fundamentally different. And she was telling me that she was. And that for me is the mark that you've got through and, and you've resonated with the audience. Wonderful. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, people coming to you after your talk. Um, that seems to me to be one of the easiest ways that speakers can network. And one of the reasons that I speak is for the networking, but I, I'm actually terrible as an introvert, I'm terrible at, at opening conversations with people. But that little period of time after you've spoken uh, is really golden time, I think, isn't it? It's total golden because they know who you are. And what, what's what, the, the downside is that I probably speak to 10, 15,000 people a year around the, around the traps. And so if people come up to me saying, oh, Andrew, how are you? And I don't know who they are. I've, yeah. I've not know, They know who I am because they've seen me. So you're right. You've just come off stage. Uh, you're in their immediate thoughts. They want to ask you a question. You can then do what I do and qualify, you know, what is it you'll do differently? But they then remember you. And so I often try and ask to speak first in in the day one because i my, my style is it's energetic and it's inspirational but it then means the rest of the day everyone knows who you are in fact i deliberately take my badge or my lanyard off not that i'm arrogant yeah. you know who don't you know who i am but it's like oh you haven't got a badge oh you must be the speaker yeah. andrew let me and and what i've done with many of my talks i'll stay there the whole day one because often the organizers say oh can you stay a bit longer we've had someone drop out we need someone for the panel and you can help them out but secondly in a room of three or 400 people, you can't get to all the questions. And often people aren't happy to ask questions with their peers in the room. And if you're standing in the back, minding your own business, I literally will have 15 people come up to me in the space of an hour and ask me a one-on-one -on -one question. And they feel like they get more value. And, and I feel like the organiser then feels they get value as well because I've hung around. I haven't just turned up, given a talk and disappeared. I've provided real value to everyone that's there in their own learning style. I think that's it. A wonderful thing that speakers can do. Uh, you know, if you're looking to get speaking experience, uh, if you have done a talk, always hang around because people always disappear for the panels. It's a great way to get more stage time. Uh, yes. Returning to this practical futures thing, you, you talk about making organizations uh, digital proof. Um, I'm skeptical. Is that, is that even possible? Um, you've got to start. Yeah. So if I said to you 25 years ago, Richard, you're going to carry around a piece of plastic with you all the time, you would have said, Andrew, you're bonkers. Why would I want to carry this thing around? And I was one of those people back in 1994. I bought my first analog mobile phone. It cost me $1,000 and I was a student. And all my friends went, why would you want one of those? They then said, they saw that I was getting more work, more consulting gigs, people could contact me. And slowly, slowly, everyone now has one. So if you were to say, I'm going to mobile proof you back then or something like that, or, or you, know, you would have said I was a bit crazy. Can you future proof a business? I think you need to be aware that you're being disrupted. 
one of the charts I show on in my talks is a, a great chart from Deloitte in Australia where they mapped all the different industries and they called it short fuse big bang. The fuse is how long do companies have until they're disrupted and the bang is what's the impact. And the big reveal is that this study was done in 2012, which means every single industry on that map has been disrupted. And, and the audience then goes, wow, we're already being disrupted, we don't know it. So starting, in fact, another organisation, PwC, did a, a study that showed that the there's more harm by doing nothing than the disruption itself. Some of these industries do have a few more years before they're disrupted. And if people sit around for a year going, oh, I'm not sure what we're going to do, they're wasting valuable time. But what the problem is, the top table has to be digital ready and able to see things through a digital lens. And I think the problem we have on many FTSE 250 boards, many advisory boards, is the board doesn't understand the language of digital. And so they don't know what they don't know. And I think that's even more dangerous. It is. Uh, and I, I, I don't dispute at all that uh, digital disruption is extremely dangerous. You only have to look at what happened to BlackBerry and Nokia to see that. Um, yeah. But what, what could they have done? How, how could BlackBerry have, and I mean, this is, this is really, this is really putting you up to it because I mean, you know, how could they have gone up against Apple? What, what, what could BlackBerry have done? Well, if you look back, and I was a BlackBerry user for many years and a Nokia yeah. user. In fact, my iPhone is only this, my second iPhone ever. That's wow. how wedded I was to their platforms. BlackBerry was cool. And in fact, I remember back to the times of the London riot some years ago, it was BlackBerry Messenger, BBM, that was fueling some of the messaging secretly between the different groups and gangs. And back then, it was hip to have a BlackBerry because it had BBM. Around the same time the iPhone came out and we all know how that ended. I think BlackBerry, again, at the top table, they didn't see where where are the trends what's shifting you know we're very arrogant because we think we've got the most secure messaging platform that's great but the look and feel of our phones is is old and so what can we do and, and i think had they tapped into the, the zeitgeist of what was going on uh nokia to the same extent i think nokia got so big and so arrogant um they didn't see apple coming now apple are now in that place where they can't be complacent they have huge market share, but what's stopping, you know, the one plus movement from coming and stealing that away? Exactly. And I, I think this dovetails into another subject that, that um, you care an awful lot about, which is uh, the diversity issue and not just uh, the classical stuff like gender diversity, but also diversity in thinking. Uh, I think it's true to say that the company boards, the leadership of a lot of companies suffer from a certain uh, extreme level of uh, homogeneity uh, you could do with a bit more diversity. Yeah, I mean, when the board comes from the same pedigree, they're ex-bankers, ex-lawyers, ex-CEOs, they'll all think the same. Um, an Australian journalist called Alan Collar a couple of weeks ago penned a very interesting piece saying while he agrees there should be quotas for women on boards, there should also be a quota for people with tech knowledge and overseas experience. And I think he's right because back to the seeing things through a digital lens, a board full of ex-lawyers and ex-bankers, probably there's a low percentage of those that really get digital. But if you have one or two, more importantly two, so that the, the person's not on their own, that could sit on a board under their own steam but also see the company through a digital lens, that's going to help you see a bit further apart. And Alan's point about the international experience I think was also important. I'm an Australian. I've been away from Australia for 12 years. I read 
the Australian press every day. I can tell you exactly what's going on in the Australian media right now. But I see Australia through an international lens and vice versa. So if I was an Australian um, uh, company listening to this and saying, where are we going to find international people that get Australia? Think of Aussie expats in, and in, in reverse, Irish expats, British expats, people that understand a gl the global situation see things through a digital lens, are then going to provide a very different, diverse view at the board. And I, I, I'll stake my name on this. If boards don't become more diverse in terms of diversity of thinking, uh, tech and international experience, they will all go the way of HMV and Jessops and, and Nokia and, and BlackBerry. They, they won't have a chance. Um, and everyone nods in wild agreement that, that we should do this. Then they go, well, you know, we're not going to change the board out for a while or they're already in their terms. If you Google um, AMP and Commonwealth Bank in Australia, their boards have been completely decimated because they got it wrong. In fact, as we record this overnight, the Commonwealth Bank in Australia have just been hit with a $600 million fine because of actions that happen at the board level that, that shouldn't have happened. Um, th this is a real problem. Boards are not fit for purpose if they don't have this digital diversity and, and this diversity of thought on either way. It seems like it, it can't be, it's, it has to be something that happens actively and you'd wonder whether that requires uh, a really strong leader at the top to actually make that happen. In one sense, uh, you could say that startups you know, like VoxGig have an advantage in the sense that we can bring in all this new blood and we can have this diverse thinking. But as a practical matter, uh, a small company is very small. It's got a tiny number of people. Uh, a large company has kind of an inherent advantage in terms of the people that it can bring to bear on a problem. Literally, if only they would open the doors to the porter. You would think so. And I saw a stat the other day that only 1.8% of FTSE 250 have someone on the board with digital experience. And that is woefully low. Um, and I can think of 100 people right now in London alone that could sit on a board that would see things through a digital lens. And we're not being tapped on the shoulder because, Andrew, you haven't got um, you know 20 years of board experience. Exactly. That's a plus. I haven't been doing things the same way for 20 years. Um, you know, I keep hearing all the negative views, but then when, when pushed deeply, people go, we should do something about this, but then they, they hold off. Whereas you're right, startups such as yours, uh, I ran six startups over a 12-year period, so I've got similar startup experience. We can pull on people uh, you know, in, in real time because we think like a startup. And I think to, to the point of where should it start, I think a quota system that's being introduced for women on boards is a good idea. Why not have a quota system for digital diversity? That would start the ball running. But I think it's the chair of the boards. The chair, he or she has to go, you know what, looking around the room, we're all the same. Where do we get diversity of thought? I, as the leader of the board, need to shake things up a bit. So either a couple of you give up your board seats and we'll rotate you out, or we're going to set up two completely new board seats. We're just going to do it. And we're going to go and source the best and brightest digital minds to help us navigate this new world. And isn't this, I mean, isn't this a healthier approach than simply trying to outsource the problem to um, business management consultants? Do you see... Um, uh, activist investors or private equity firms having a role to play here in terms of pushing boards in this direction? Have they failed? They, they do. And I've been approached by a number of them to say, we're interested in what you're saying. Whenever I, I blog about this, it always smokes out the people that are interested in this. But they then go, well, we'll, we'll just have you on file. And maybe when we turn the board over or we look at a new investment, maybe then we'll bring you in. And I'm thinking, 
again, uh, I, I would almost do this for free. I, I want, I don't want companies to fail because they are blindsided by digital disruption. So I think it is, um, it is the role of people who have a portfolio of companies to say, have we got it stacked the right way? Do we need to inject some more thinking? Because there's uh, you know report after report of, of what happens when boards stay the same. But it's, uh, I don't think we're going to solve that on this podcast. <laughs> but it is something, I mean, it is something very near and dear to, uh, to my heart in terms of I'm building an organization and how do you go about creating the right culture? How do you, how do you go, how do you go about creating culture that can make good decisions? Uh, it's a very, yeah. very hard problem to solve. You know what you need? You need a board member who is a fervent public speaker, understands digital, has international experience. I'm not sure where you're going to find one of those. Well, if you know of any, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah. Uh, returning to the, the speaking question, uh, we, I mean, we found, uh, I've done a number of startups sort of myself, that uh, getting involved in events and getting people out there to speak uh, is, is great for business. Um, and it's, it's one of those skills if you are founding a business that uh, really pays off, uh, have you found that in, in, your, in your Oh, absolutely. It's, it's free. It's free advertising and companies are hungry for great public speakers. The, the balance though is you can't pitch from stage. Now I was 12 years in startups and then four years at IBM. And in both situations, I had people say, Andrew, I'd love you to come and speak, but please don't, don't pitch to which I'd say, I don't know how to pitch from the stage. I will give you thought leadership. I'll give you, interesting insights i will entertain and inspire your audience i'll let them know where i work that's fair but i won't overplay that And i think speakers that turn up with the first five slides are all about my company that i want you to know about it's a it's really boring what, what was interesting in both sides from the startup side to the ibm side when i was running the startups we got on stage to places we could never afford to because it would be 10 15 20 30 grand to sponsor something and i got it there under my own steam and i would then you know um uh, natively promote the organization that i was in fast forward to ibm i got ibm onto stages they would never get onto even with payment because uh, you know, there was a competitor there or they weren't prepared to pay that amount of money to sponsor. So I got on stage. They saw that a very, um, you, know, uh, you know, great set of content was produced and, and presented. Oh, and that person also works at IBM. I wonder who else is there. So big or small company, I think it should be the, the role of the founder and, and the senior management team to have that public speaking experience. Because you know what? 99% of people that sit in front of me don't want to do that. So be the 1% that do and have a voice. And if you say something useful, you know, literally I would come off stage, wipe my brow, and there'd be a line of people wanting my business card, even though I hadn't pushed any product on stage. It, it's, it's free promotion. Um, and if done properly, it can be really interesting as and well. Very effective. I, I mean, this is the number one reason to... Um get up off your arse as a CEO and get out there and speak. Uh, get over yeah, your fear yeah. because you, you, it helps you sell. I mean, what, what I see happen with quite a few companies is they push the salespeople out to speak. Oh, and of yeah. course they do product pitches because that's their bread and butter. They're used to yep. 10 people in a conference room and they have a, they have a sales deck and off they go and it, it falls flat or worse than flat. It's, it's, it's um, a disaster. It makes the company look bad and, and people go, why did they put them up? Oh, well, they paid for sponsorship, didn't they? So then it looks like graft, and yeah, it's 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 not yeah. good. It's not good. Doesn't work. The, of course, the hard work is is coming up with a little bit of original thought. Um, but then you know you did sign up to be CEO, so that's sort of 
It's part of your job. Or, or crowdsource it. Again, diversity of yes. thought. Yes. Go to the team and say, hey, we've got this great opportunity. It's They've picked me, but we as a company have the opportunity to be on stage. What should I say? And crowdsource That's it. And then in the talk, you can say, my millennial Betty or my millennial Terry, I was just talking to them in the day and this is what they suggested. So you can actually loop them in or bring them up on stage. Get get them on stage for, for a part as well and involve them to be dynamic. And here's where, here's where the practical bit comes in, isn't it? Because... In order to make use of diversity in your company, you have to do things like crowdsource the ideas. Uh, that's a fantastic mm. suggestion. Uh, let's let's return to the the, the skill of public speaking uh, before mm. we wrap up. Uh, you um, you t- you talk about always getting filmed, and you talk about always getting feedback. Uh, that's pretty rough. I cannot stand the sound of my own voice on a recording. How do you get over that? Well, I'll tell you why you you can't stand the sound of your own voice and I can't either. We hear our voice differently to everyone else in the world. When we talk, we hear through our ears and our ear canal and the the open air. So we sound funny when we hear a recording, which is what everyone else hears. When I heard that scientific explanation one day, I thought, oh, okay, that's why I sound funny. Get over myself. What I started doing in very basic with my phone and a tripod was filming my talks and then watching them back. And I've got to tell you, it took me two years to overcome the cringe factor and watch them back before I could be you know, um, critical. Once I got over that and this person said, this is why you hear yourself in a funny way, I then watched the talks and I went, actually, that bit was really good. And I can't remember doing that. It was a spare of the moment thought and it came across really well. And then I came across people like Martin who would professionally say, okay, I'm going to watch your whole talk and I'm going to provide you with four or five things that you can do differently. And I kid you not, I'm up on stage, Martin's voice in the back of my head saying, don't do slide surprise, don't do this, don't do that. Yeah. And so when I film them, I've got two assets. I've got an asset I can watch back and say, that was really good. I then have a, a high quality um, footage that I own the rights to for my showreel. And the third thing is I put it up on my site and I kid you not, I've had people say, I've just been on your site. I've seen this talk from the 15th of February. Can we have one like that? And I I have not seen any other speaker around the world do this. They often rely on the organizers filming it and giving them the footage, which of course you don't own. So I literally lug my camera and tripod and wireless mic kit around the world. And I've now started live streaming. And people say, well, no one's ever asked this before. And I I then, at every talk that I do, when I have permission, obviously, I have high quality um, material that I own the rights to that I can use later on. And it's incredibly valuable. And so much so, I've even got a section on my website that explains all the kit in detail, but I've yet to meet another speaker on the circuit that has brought their own kit. Uh, I must read that. What is your website, just just for our listeners? Uh, Andrew.London is my speaking website, Andrew.London. And there's no.co.uk. Again, to be different, people then say, oh, I haven't heard of that. Well, it's a bit different. I, I know how these things work. So I've tried to get an easy to remember website. It's my name and where I live. It's really easy. That is fantastic. Well, let, let, let's just narrow in on the subject of um, speakers' rights. Uh, I like to talk mm. about them. I mean, I think a lot of the time the speaker is providing a free service because most of the time you don't get paid um and i, I mean I, I really think that uh it's a it's a pretty decent quid pro quo for organizers and events to give us access to our own recordings and it's so useful for you as a speaker to be able to have a, a page on your blog or your site or whatever that is literally just a list of the, the talks that you've gone to and i have you know I, I've, I've done that in the past and then you link out to conference websites or whatever but then they change and you lose the video 
sort of thing. So, mm. I mean, I, I think really it would be a nice, very polite convention uh, to develop in, in this industry. Um, first, at least as speakers, at least have access to our own material. Well, I, I negotiate that. That's why I take my camera. Yeah. So I always, and they say, oh, we're filming anyway, to which I go, that's fine. But I tell you what's going to happen in three weeks time. I'm never going to get the footage. But he, I also have a section on my website about what to do before the event to be a speaker that people want to have back. The first person I befriend on site is the tech team. I, I go and introduce myself and say, I'm the keynote speaker. I'm speaking third on the day. My name's Andrew. What's your name? My name's Peter. From that moment, when you have made a personal connection, Peter will do anything uh, within reason that I ask him because I bother to learn his name. I go up and I say, look, I've done your job before as a volunteer. And they go, oh, thank goodness. Someone who realized how hard my job is. And I often ask to have my laptop on stage, which may, may mean running an extra cable. I kid you not, I've had techs relay the whole system um, hours before the event because I've asked them nicely. And then a couple of times recently, again, with permission of the organiser, I've gone to the, the tech guys. And in fact, this happened a few weeks ago at the Intercontinental at the O2. They had a three camera set up uh, broadcasting live. I took my own camera and got decent footage. So I befriended, I think it was Chris, who was the, the yeah. AV guy. I could go and get the cable. He gave me a 135 gigabyte file, three camera, professionally switched, HD quality vision Lovely. that I could Lovely. use. And I just grabbed it onto my laptop and I, I went, thank you so much. And he's like, oh, we had a chat about the equipment. If you befriend the crew and, and the producer and the organiser and the tech team, um, you're working as a team. It doesn't matter whether you're being paid or you're there for free. They want you to look great, but they also need respect. So I found that even the photographer, so I go and find the photography name, names, Gary or, or Lisa. Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm the third speaker. I use my hands a lot. Like, oh, great, because they want to take really interesting photos. And guess what? If there are a number of streams running, they hang at my stream because they know they're going to get great visuals. And I then afterwards say, can I please have the photos with permission? And guess what? I use Moo.com for my business cards. On the back of all my cards are a great shot of me in flight presenting. Um, little things like that can really make you stand out. And also on the day, the crew goes, we'll have him again because he, he was a delight to work with. He respected us. He, he knew how, how hard our job was. And he made things easy for us to make him look great. This is pro-level stuff, guys. Um, the, the AV people, I think you're absolutely right. It's a really tough job. And especially if you're nervous and you, and you, you haven't been speaking that much, you can be so inside your own head that you can forget mm. that... Um, if you if you work on the crew, you only have downside. If you do your job wonderfully, nobody notices. Um, no, nobody notices. So yeah. they have a really high stress job. And if you just pay them mm. a tiny bit of respect, like you said, just say hi Peter, hi Paul, whatever their name is, uh, they love you. Because uh, a lot of people don't. because you you give give bother because no one else gives them the time of day unless something goes wrong. Whereas here am I getting there early, befriending them, understanding that, and and you know, I'll have a bit of a geek chat about the gear they're using. They then go, this guy's a pro, he knows what he's doing. I want to make him look really good. Yes, uh, you know, and they'll cut you a little bit of slack if your time runs over. And exactly. All that sort of stuff. Ah, no, 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 Richard, your time never runs uh, over because you spend seventy nine pence on P clock. <laughs> now tell me P more. P then clock. This is an iPad app I've been using for years. P clock, one word, 79 pence, 50 cents on the app store. It's a dirty great clock. And so I take the, the iPad on stage. It counts down in minutes and seconds. And I know exactly how long I've got left. And I have never, ever run over because I've always known when I'm out of time and I finish. It respects the organizer. It respects the next speaker. And you haven't got someone flashing their arms at you when you've run over. And you know whether you need to speed up or slow down. 
It's so simple. It'll run on an iPad or an iPhone. And, and the funny thing was I, I blogged about this years ago and the developer who made it emailed me saying, thanks for the post. My mum saw it and she was so proud oh, of what I'd done <laughs> because my mum had no idea what I did. So uh, I, I got another fan there. But Peacock is so simple. It's for presenters. And uh, it means that I take the iPad on stage. It's, it's not visible to the camera or to the audience. But out of the corner of my eye, I know that I've got five minutes and 22 seconds left. It's just things like that that are so simple that anyone can do, regardless of their level of public speaking. But it shows that if, you, if you're just starting out and you're actually timing your own presentation, people will notice. They go, yeah, you're taking this seriously. Yeah, it's all these little details that you pull together. I, I must admit, I, I struggle with the timing thing. I either come in way too short or I have to rush the last couple of slides. And it's, uh, it's one of those things that, that's uh, a challenge. Um, but uh, just little aids like this peacock thing. Um, I mean, that's mm. a great idea. It's obvious when you say it. But. Well, but also I, I do rehearsal. Every time I speak, I've done a rehearsal either several on the day or several day before. I know exactly whether I'm long or short to cut things out and I time it using the peacock. And I even know that, you know, I've got three or four slides to go. If I'm at the three-minute mark, then I'm going to get it in or I've got to then, you know, uh, do something different. But I think rehearsal then you're confident. First of all, your first 90 seconds and your last 90 seconds, you've nailed those in rehearsal. And also, you know exactly whether you'll be on time or not. I think things like that make a difference. And often I've had people come up to me and say, um, that looks so easy. And I, I said to them, if only you knew how many rehearsals I'd done. And they went, really? I said, yeah, really. That's why it looked so effortless. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it, it, is, it is something you have to um, be professional enough. Andrew, uh, this has been fantastic, really interesting, uh, a bunch of really, really cool tips out of this. Um, and if you're, if you're just starting at, in public speaking, I mean, you're kind of the, the, uh, the place everybody wants, wants to get to. Um, you know exactly what you're doing. Um, you kind of, you've got to the keynote level. Um, but it's really nice to know that a lot of it boils down to simple but obvious tricks and, and skills and a mental approach that says, you know, I'm going to do a good job. It's not, it's not just some wonderful skill that I was born with. It's something that I had to work at. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people have to get over. They, they have to realize that it's just, you can just work at it and you can get better over time. Each time you practice, and that's why I record them, each time I, I speak, I get better and better. And, and I would like to think in the last year alone, I've seen uh, an improvement in what I've done just because I've changed things or, or slightly modified things. You know, I look at it, if I was an athlete, which I'm clearly not, uh, I would have a coach and that coach would be saying, we want you to get your personal best faster and faster and faster. Um, I, I surround myself with coaches. I have, I have an agent, I have, I have Martin and other people that try and make me better and better and better because I, I do charge for my talks. And so people are investing time and money in seeing me speak. It, it's up to me to ensure that they get the best of the best. And each time I present, I want to get better and better and better. Yes, and that's, and it seems to be working. Um, if you want to see some of the wonderful stuff uh, that Andrew has done, Andrew.London is the place to go. Do you want to tell us a little bit more uh, about what you do and uh, what you offer and all that, Andrew, before we sign off? Yeah, so I, I obviously do the keynotes and I, I do panels and moderation, those sort of things. Uh, I mean, I'll pretty much uh, speak at any event that uh, people have me at. But I, I talk about a number of um, different topics. And in fact, on, on the website, I, I lay them out. Uh, the, the, the talk I'm most often asked to present is about digital disruption, because everyone understands they're being disrupted and what do they need to do. And so I talk about that 
across multiple industries. And often I'm learning myself. A few weeks ago, I was in Amsterdam doing a talk to the logistics industry. And then the week before, it was a financial industry. So I, I have to learn about what's happening in each of these industries. Um, I also talk about this notion of social selling. Actually, when I was at IBM, I sold $100 million worth of consulting uh, time through social selling and, 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 and uh, you know, those sort of techniques. We were talking about this digital proof business. I talk about that. I also talk about more cultural things like the workplace, the future, rising above the noise, personal brand and digital diversity from both sides. So uh, while I'm a technologist, I don't just talk about technology. Often I'm actually talking about the cultural impacts of, of technology. And, and because I'm this practical futurist, I like to leave people with practical ideas. So every talk that I do is that little bit different. It's crafted to the audience that I'm, I'm speaking with. Uh, I, I've just done about of podcasts today as well. So um, I have an opinion and a view and I have had for a long time and I'm happy to lend that to, to various forums. So uh, I'd welcome anyone uh, that would like to read what I write. And, um, and again, on that website, andrew.london, you can see examples of me speaking and maybe just maybe they might inspire uh, a brand new speaker to get to the next level. I'd love to hear from people. Uh, I'd love to lend my time to give the, the tips. The last 19 years have been an overnight success, some would say. <laughs> so uh, I'm very happy to help uh, young speakers uh, with these tips and, and get them ready. And uh, you know, I really want to see the next wave of, of speakers uh, come along. Someone once famously said that um, when you're uh, up in the elevator, it's your responsibility to send it back down again. And so I want to I want to teach people the skills I've learned. I don't want them to have to wait 19 years to, to get a keynote. I want them to do it in two years. Uh, and that is that is absolutely a great a great thought to to, to leave with. Um, so Andrew is willing to take your calls if you're trying trying to get, learn how to be a public speaker. Uh, and uh, just keep an eye out as well for these upcoming gigs. I certainly will be after this. Um, thank you very much, Andrew. It's been fantastic talking. Richard, thanks. For, and good luck with your business too. I hope you can help uh, speakers connect and, uh, and grow. That is the plan. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of Fireside with Boxgig. You can find notes and links from this podcast at boxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter of public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit boxgig.com slash newsletter to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email richard at boxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.